This is Dan Rundy, and this is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with Alec Ross, who's the author of The Industries of the Future, which was published a couple years ago, but I think is one of the one of the most important books of the last 10 years. I read it in conjunction with the fourth industrial revolution, which was Klaus Schwab's book, as well as the second machine age. I think the the two authors at MIT, and then I, I also think about it in context of Moises Naim's book, The End of Power. I think. It's really a fascinating book, and we're going to have a chance to get into some of the details of it and what it means for us and for the future. I think this was a very prescient book, and I think it was a little ahead of its time, and you were ahead of the curve, and I think a lot of folks have followed since. So it's really great to have you. Thanks for being with us, Alex. Well, thanks for having me, Dan, and thank you for introducing my book that way. It's in good company along with some of the other books you listed there. Well, thanks. Tell me about... Where did you grow up? I grew up in coal country in West Virginia. No blue blood in this body. Yeah, no, I, look, I grew up in the hills of West Virginia and helped put myself through college doing fun jobs like working as a midnight janitor and on a, on a beer truck, which are about the only kind of jobs you could get down in West Virginia. In, in Kanawha County. Kanawha County, that's right. Right. There's a moment in the book at the Kanawha County Coliseum. Is that where you that's were? That's right. That's right, at the Civic Center there. The Civic Center. I've been there. Oh, God. Bless you. So those are the rings in your halo. That's right. What One took of the you there? Were you there for was it wrestling or college? A friend of mine's the congressman there. Okay. Alex Mooney, who I went to Dartmouth with, is the West Virginia Two's member of Congress. I was his finance chairman in another life, so mm-hmm. I, I know Alex. Um, so I, I got to know. It's not Kanawha County, is what I was it's told. It's Kanawha. Kanawha, right? There are seventeen counties in the second congressional district. It's one of the largest east of the Mississippi. There was a dinner of the the Kanawha County Republican Party next to the no at the Civic Center I think and there was sort of like they carved off a piece of it and it was a one of it was a, an out of body very interesting experience and out of body experience in many ways for a conversation perhaps for another time but very yeah, that's bet. what brought me there well and 25 years ago if that dinner had been taking place there I would have been the guy who beginning at about midnight would have been pushing the mop to clean up afterwards it's amazing. And then you, but you went to Northwestern. I did. My mother, nicknamed Becky the Barbarian, insisted that even though you know we were a couple public school kids from the hills of West Virginia, we were going to work hard in school. So I got into Northwestern, and uh, that's sort of what got me out of the hills of West Virginia. That's great. And what did you major in there? History. And then from there, you you did Teach for America from there. I did. Yeah. So you know, you get an envelope that tells you where you're going to live. And so 24 years ago, I got a piece of mail that said, hey, you're going to be a sixth grade teacher in inner city Baltimore. And I've been living in Baltimore ever since. You know, I lived in Baltimore for a couple of years. I really liked it. Charm City. Mm-hmm. I, I love the crab cakes. I'm real funny about eating crab cakes anywhere outside of sort of a 50-mile range of Baltimore or southern Maryland. I, I'm funny about it. I wouldn't eat crab, crab cakes or crabs outside of Maryland, I don't think. That's a. I'm. I'm buying that. I'm buying that. And how about? Are you an Orioles fan? I am. I'm more of a Ravens fan. I, I, I like the Orioles, but I love the Baltimore Ravens. So I, I lived in Baltimore when the Ravens returned, and it was sort of this. You know, returned obviously because the Colts left in 1983, and it was sort of a great trauma for the city of Baltimore, which I'm sure you know. I do, and part of why I'm such a big Ravens fan is because you know, moving to Baltimore, you sort of. You inherit the Orioles, but with the Ravens coming when I lived there, I felt like we got a little piece of ownership of it. Amen. That's good. So me and my three kids, I've got an 11-year-old, 13-year-old, and 15-year-old, and much to my wife's dismay, we're all big football fans. Ah. (laughs) That's great. 
And so, so you did Teach for America. And so, what happened after that? Oh, you know, look, I was when I was teaching. You know, this is the mid '90s, and like everybody else, I'm witnessing the technology-led transformation of the economy and of the way that people communicated and transacted business. And I'm kind of like, oh my goodness, if the jobs in the ports, factories, mines, and mills are going away, what do you do? And so, having grown up in the hills of West Virginia and teaching in in West Baltimore, I'm kind of like, well, what about kids like where I grew up from and like kids who I'm teaching? And so I started a company, the purpose of which was to help people build technology skills because my, my thinking was, well, in a world of globalization and automation, if you're the one who can tell the machines what to do, that's a good thing. Now, if I were smart, and from this point forward, people will question the intelligence of the person you're interviewing here on this podcast. If I were really smart, I would have started a proper venture-backed for-profit company, made a lot of money. Instead, do-gooder little Teach for America teacher that I was, I started a nonprofit. But we went from being three people in a basement to, you know, having a nice big global company to help basically people from low income and working class communities compete and succeed in, in the digital economy. What was it called? It was called One Economy. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. right idea at the right time. I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the world, but I've had good timing more than once. You've had fabulous timing more than once. You've had fabulous timing. So how did you at some point, end up working for Hillary Clinton. How'd that happen? You know, I ran this company, helped run this company for eight years. And I got I got to know Barack Obama through that. First, when he was a state senator on the south side of Chicago, there was some public housing down there that I, I did work in with my, with my nonprofit. And when he ran for the United States Senate, I helped him run a couple years after. And I got him involved in an initiative at our, at our nonprofit. When he ran for president from literally the point of his announcing, February 2017, I was involved. I ended up running Tech 2007. Me- 2007. Yeah, that's right. Today. On the, on the steps of the old state house. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So from there forward, I was involved in his campaign. I ran tech media and telecom policy. That's fabulous. And it went well, and it went well at Hillary Clinton's expense. You doing expense. that full-time or a volunteer? So it was a volunteer, but effectively full-time. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. And so after he won, I joined the transition team. And the work we did on the campaign was really innovative, and it had caught then-Senator Clinton's notice. And so when she was nominated to be Secretary of State, she said, hey, come work for me. You can create your own title, which is why I got a title like Senior Advisor for Innovation, and worked with her for four years. And what were you doing for her? I led the sort of breaking case of emergency team where traditional diplomatic teams and solutions weren't working. I put together a team of people mostly coming out of Silicon Valley to come up with new solutions to things. So just to make that concrete for a second, I'll give you two examples. One, I think Secretary Clinton had been in one too many meetings about the power of the drug cartels in northern Mexico and all the billions of dollars we were spending to no effect. So she sent me and a team down there, and we set up shop in Ciudad Juarez for a while, the purpose of which was to come up with a solution to figure out how we could more effectively combat the cartels. So we noticed that people were no longer reporting crime, because if you did, you get you get shot in the head. And the fact that people were no longer reporting crime because of the degree to which the cartels had infiltrated the police forces really gave the cartels a big advantage. So we created this thing that is now ubiquitous in Mexico and really effective called the Denuncia Anonima, which is basically an anonymous encrypted text messaging program where people can text message tips and it's scrubbed from your device. It only goes to really heavily vetted federal police. And we helped take down the leadership of two cartels through that. 
so did that in partnership with the Northern Command. Another example, you know, the revolution in Libya. Working with my friend Chris Stevens, you know, before he was ambassador, mm-hmm. Mohammed Al Qaddafi, Muammar Qaddafi's oldest son, his day job was the chair of LibyaTel, the te- the Libyan telecommunications company. And at the very beginning of the revolution, he shut down all the mobile networks in rebel-held territory, and this was really uh, degrading the effectiveness of the rebels. They couldn't communicate with each other. They couldn't communicate with the outside world. So. Chris Stevens and I put together an operation basically where we restored communications in eastern Libya. So my job was basically to come in with a tool set rooted in technology or telecommunications, the purpose of which was to advance our foreign policy interests. I just wish I'd been in charge of Hillary's emails. We would have come up with a better solution than what she did. Yes. Details, details. Details, details. So you left government. and. How did you decide to write this? So four years working for Secretary Clinton, and then I decided to write The Industries of the Future because, you know, I traveled all over the world. In in the four years that I worked at the State Department, I traveled, my assistant totaled it up 951,000 miles to 41 countries. Mm. It's the equivalent of two round trips to the moon with a side trip to New Zealand. Oh, my. So I'd seen— You were married. I was married with three little kids. kids, Three little kids. And you drive back to Baltimore every night. I'd take the train back to Baltimore every night. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, right? Well, I was, yeah, yes. And so I, I, I wrote this book because I sort of had a really close-up view of how science and technology were reshaping the economy, how people were communicating, collaborating, and transacting business very differently. And I saw a, a glimpse of what was to come. And what I thought was lacking was a book that was smart but still accessible. Not a book written for engineers, but a book that would take topics ranging from cybersecurity to big data to artificial intelligence. And instead of a 400-page book about cyber, a 400-page book about big data, a 400-page book about AI, writing a book that covers those as well as other issues describes the connective tissue between them in a way that it's written for a university-educated audience but not for an engineer. I really felt like a broader swath of readers needed to understand the forces shaping the future. So that's why I wrote The Industries of the Future. I was really taken by it, and it had a, made a big impression on me. It was super accessible, very readable, and very prescient. What are the things, I mean, you've written a couple of years ago. It's, I think it's quite evergreen. I think this will be a book that's read five years from now. No, I think it has going to have a long shelf life. What are the things that have surprised you about the reaction to the book? And talk about some of the things that have sort of begun to come, either come true or not come true on some of the things that you describe in the book. Right. So I wouldn't disavow any of the pages of the book. I think that it's held up well. I think that the piece that sort of stuck out to most people was the section on the weaponization of code. You know, I think the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material. The difference being the creation of a nuclear arm requires access to the scarcest of scarce scientific talent and transuranium elements, whereas creating a really powerful cyber weapon has a much lower barrier to entry. And so I did, you know, the book published in 2016, but before the election, and it does a case study on Russia. And so basically it describes what Russia is doing, and lo and behold, they sort of do it straight out of the textbook in the United States, sort of as described in the pages of the book. 
So that is what has sort of stood out to people the most. If there were one other thing that I flagged that sort of surprised people the most, it's that when I wrote it, I think a lot of the people thought that the content about robotics and AI was fanciful. And I think we are beginning to see AI becoming something that is consequential. It's not a hypothetical based on a theoretical based on a maybe, but in the next few years, we will see AI having an impact on our everyday lives at work and at home in a way that's noticeable. We're doing a project here on the world of work. So I was taken by these books, and I think there's sort of a specific conversation in the United States, and and the conversation is slightly different in different country contexts. And my first thought was the fourth industrial revolution, use Schwab's term, how that was going to impact developing countries. What happened if you had countries experience what Danny Roderick has called premature deindustrialization? So like if you've had the ladder to get out of poverty in Sri Lanka is the textile factories, and if robots are going to replace uh, women from villages' jobs with robots, what the heck does that mean in terms of what's the pathway? So premature deindustrialization, that's a, it's a really long term for that for that idea. And so we've sent teams to India, Brazil, Kazakhstan, and Nigeria to look at different country contexts. We put a task force together. We're going to be rolling out our findings in October. And we'll have a lot to say in the coming months. What shocked me was a couple of things. One was that we interviewed probably 200 folks, and we said, okay, fourth industrial revolution, drones, robots, driverless cars, AI. They'd all heard of it. This is a grass, gross simplification. But they said this is sort of, depending on the country context, these were not sort of the front and center issues. Whereas if I think if you have a Washington discussion or if you go to London, I think these are these are existential. This book is touches something almost at an existential level here in Washington. The things that were pushing their buttons was either a youth bulge, lack of infrastructure, the issues of formality and informality. And then this kind of came further down the list. It wasn't sort of meeting their Maslow's hierarchy of development needs in terms of where they were on the spectrum. And so India, they'd say, okay, driverless cars, we're having a hard time getting, just getting cars up, or we just have crappy infrastructure. And there's a whole lot of stuff that is assumptions built into driverless cars for that to sort of manifest itself in the next 20 years in India. Whereas in the U.S., I think that's that's a real thing. In Korea, I think that if you're, I think in an OECD context, I think there's a very specific reaction to these set of challenges. I think in a developing country context, there's a divergent set of reactions so that was that's been my that's my deepest thought that I've taken away from all of this is that that the fourth industrial revolution or sort of the the industries of the future as you've talked about the disruptions are certainly coming here I think they're real I I buy your argument but what shocked me after having had folks go out and looked at all this stuff is as you talk to someone in Nigeria this is not what's at the top of mind for them now I think maybe they're maybe it's just they, they they're not going to see it coming but I think it's interesting that there's some there's some certain assumptions built into sort of the things that are going to need for this to happen. And so what so that's your point is really well made. I agree with it. Here's where I think the future of the Kazakhstan's, the Nigerias, and the Brazils are going to be driven by the industries of the future, by the fourth industrial re- revolution. It's going to come from those individuals and those institutions who figure out 
how to leverage these developments in technology and science in a way that addresses basic needs. In those countries, in those sort of context-specific needs. So let's talk about Nigeria for a second. Yeah. So Nigeria, if you land in Lagos, it's god-awful, right? I mean— That's the think tank term. Yeah, that's, 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 yes. that's exactly yes. right. That is what can, can appear on the podcast without yes. getting bleeped out. <laughs> Um, and no, I mean, yeah. so the, the lack of infrastructure yes. in a Lagos, in a place with 25 million people in the metropolitan area built for maybe three, is horrendous. It's horrendous. And so you could sort of curl into the fetal position and say, oh, well, we lack basic infrastructure. We can't think about the industries of the future. The better response to that, I believe, is being taken by a company called Andela. Mark Zuckerberg actually hadn't traveled to Africa, to the continent of Africa until I think 2017. I think the, the beginning of 2017 was the first time he was there. And Mark's first investment out of the Chan Zuckerberg initiative was in this company called Andela. They're headquartered in New York, but they have programs in Kampala, in Nairobi, and in Lagos. And the way they think about it is as follows. In an environment of real density, like 25 million people, where there's been connectivity for the last 10 years, there are going to be a ton of incredibly talented people who have given the opportunity to really develop that human capital could become world-class coders. So what Andela has done is it's created a cohort of several hundred people through who, who it has put through really, really, really rigorous technology training. They then basically sell the, the coding ability of those several hundred Nigerians to Fortune 500s in the United States without leaving the country because with underwater fiber optic cable, you don't need it. They get paid a lot. Whatever Wells Fargo will pay a high-level coder, that is now an asset that's being transferred to Lagos. And so you've now got several hundred people who are making near-Western wages for high-level coding. They're basically building a knowledge sector. And so that if you can get ahead of these things, let's think about India. So India has an agricultural crisis. They have enormous numbers of subsistence level farmers. They have a great difficulty feeding their you know, plus minus 1.3 billion citizens. If you think about how to use precision agriculture, basically the mashup between data analytics and agriculture, and bring that into the most deprived environments like India, you can solve the needs right at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So for me, the real genius and the real breakthroughs are going to come from those people who recognize the real challenges in the Brazils, the Kazakhstans, the Nigerias, and Indias, but also figure out ways in which emerging technologies can actually solve some of these very basic real-world problems. Yeah, I'm buying that. I agree with that. Should people be losing sleep at night that they're going to lose their job to a robot? You know what's sad is the people who should be losing sleep aren't thinking about it. And if you are thinking about the coming of the robots, then you're probably fine. Isn't that terrible? It's terrible. I mean, but the, so here's the problem. The problem is the person who should be worried is the, let's call it the 32-year-old truck driver. The 32-year-old truck driver might be driving a truck when he's 42. He probably won't be driving a truck for a living when he's 52. Yeah, I'm buying that. So, but that is that 32-year-old truck driver whose formal education probably ended at 16. Is he losing sleep over this? No. The people who are thinking about this are Dan Rundy, Alec Ross. It's, it's, it's people who are actually 
relatively well positioned to compete and succeed in, in a changing workforce and economy. But it's that 32-year-old who is expecting 30 years of employment with his hands on the steering wheel of a big rig. Is he losing sleep? No. Will he be losing sleep? You know, right, ten years from now. Ten, ten years from now, now six yes, when yes. he sees all of his buddies yes. getting laid off yes. because of what. So that's the problem. I, I, Alec, I heard something like there's something like three million truck drivers in the United States. That's I believe right. they're mainly white males. It uh, is the number one source of employment for men in the United States is driving a motor vehicle. They are our bus drivers, our truck drivers, yeah. the FedEx. It's a well-paying job that does not require any post-secondary education. It's working-class white guys and African-Americans, and they're very vulnerable. We could argue that we had a disruptive election in 2016. Three million males. I mean, talk about a disrupt. That's a big demographic disruption. So we began this conversation, Dan, talking about West Virginia. Yeah. West Virginia, during my lifetime, has changed wildly politically. Yes. Regardless of your politics, whether you know you're on the political right or political yeah. left, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't you, matter. It's just disruptive, right? It's you, disruptive. And that has happened as a byproduct in part of deindustrialization. The jobs that you could get with the strength of your shoulders working in a port, a factory, a mine, or a mill has been either automated or displaced. Take, or, or gone somewhere else. That's right. Automa it's either automated or it's gone somewhere else. Put an exponent over that, cube it, and you would have the force and effect of three million working class males losing their jobs driving motor vehicles. So I don't take a, a dystopian view of this because it's not happening tomorrow. But what I do believe is that unless we begin focusing on areas of education and workforce development now, anticipating I these changes, then we're going to have a huge problem. I suspect it's probably one of the reasons you got involved in you ran for office just recently. I did. I ran for governor. I lost. But I decided to run in the first place precisely because of this. So if you had a magic wand, what would be the sorts of things that you'd be doing in basic ed? What would be the sorts of things you'd be thinking about in secondary ed? And if I say the term vocational technical training, just kind of word associate on those three things. So basic ed, secondary ed, voc tech. What's your reaction to that, given they've spent 20 years thinking about this? Sure. So basic ed, I think that we need, in the same way in which we teach people to read and write, even if they aren't going to become journalists or authors, and we teach people math, even if they aren't going to become accountants, so too do I think we need to have universal computer science education. Not because everybody's going to grow up to become a computer scientist, but I do think that if you just if you look at available jobs. And if you look at the increasing primacy that these technology platforms are going to have in our lives, I would like for more people from more zip codes to have fluency in that. So that in basic ed. I'm buying that. I'm yeah. buying that. In secondary ed, I'm a big proponent of interdisciplinary learning. What do I mean by that? I mean, when I think about the people who are most resilient and the people who are really going to lead in tomorrow's world, a lot of people say, oh, it's all about STEM. It's all about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that having domain expertise in something scientific or technical is great. 
But I believe if you want to lead in tomorrow's world, you're going to combine domain expertise and something that we associate with technically, scientific or technological, and combine that with something that we associate with the humanities. I mean, look at Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, everybody says, oh, he was a computer science student at Harvard. Well, guess what? He was a double major. He also majored in psychology. And Facebook is as much a byproduct of his expertise in psychology as a, as a byproduct of his expertise in computer science. And so I think that the people who are going to really be best off in tomorrow's world are people who have emotional intelligence, communications ability, an understanding of basic economics, and combine that with an understanding of things that are technical or scientific. And then you said vocational technical education. That's exactly the right thing to be bringing up. The United States uh, lends itself very well to the kind of apprenticeship programs and pathways into the skilled trades that you see in a lot of Central and Northern European countries. I mean, if you think about the parts of America that are struggling right now, it oftentimes are, are, are parts of the United States, people within the United States who 30 years ago would have had good, well-paying union jobs, and today they don't. And, and I don't think those jobs are coming back. They aren't coming back. But where, but there are good skilled trades where there is job growth, but where we have skills deficits. In my home state of Maryland, the average age of a plumber is 60. The average age of a master electrician is 58. And we do a terrible job in the United States of creating pathways for people into the skilled trades, where they do a far better job of it in Central and Northern Europe. So, so I, th we I, should be doing that in the U.S. Yeah, I think we do a, a poor job. I, I wonder how much of that is an over-bias among elites to say, we've got to have people get four-year degrees. And so, that there's a stigma. If you don't have a four-year degree, you're an idiot, or it's sort of like there's a class, there's an implicit class distinction. Is that How much of that is that the problem? It's a, the spot, it's a big part of the problem. And this is really a byproduct of something that's really has its roots in really began in sort of the mid-late 80s. Really? You know, from the for the longest time, up until like the mid-80s, having not having a four-year degree, but having a good working class, middle class job was viewed with esteem. Close your eyes and think back to sort of Eisenhower's America and mom and dad sitting at the head of the table after a 40-hour work week. Mom was probably at home. Mom was probably at home. Dad was... Working at a factory at General Motors and... And did not have a four-year degree. And so culturally in the United States, the, our rhetoric really began to take off in the mid and late 80s around this. And then, you know, honestly, some of my previous bosses, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton really guilty of this, where, you know, so many of their education policies were all about how can we get more people into college? And if you go to college, you're a winner. If you don't go to college, you're a loser. That was sort of the implication of the rhetoric. And people note, notice that. What percentage of the American adult population have a university degree? I think it's 35%. Right. It, we have, we are out of the 196 countries on planet Earth. We are actually number one out of the 196 in terms of the number of people who we send to college. Like the total number. The, to the, the, the percentage. The percentage, the, 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 percentage the, the percentage of the cohort of like 18-year-olds or whatever it is. That's exactly right. And 
Oftentimes what we are preparing people for is to become a barista at your Starbucks. With an art history degree. With an art history degree. And God bless people who want to get an art history degree and who can get gainful employment with that degree. Some people, For some people that's ideal. But for us, we've really created this false binary of if you go to college, you're a winner. If you don't go to college, you're a loser. And we're now in this terrible cycle where we have people who aren't going to college who lack the skills to compete and succeed in skilled trades. And then we have people going to college who come out with enormous amounts of student debt. And it majored in basket weaving or something, and it wasn't, it, it's not marketable. That's exactly right. So we've really- Nothing against basket weaving. No, but we've gotten, the problem is that we've gotten the balance wrong, and the, our math is off. We put enormous amount of tax dollars into higher ed, and I'm all for it. I think it's an important asset. We're going to be doing an event here with three university presidents next month, President Purdue, the President Babs, and the President Marquette with Senator Todd Young about America's higher education system as a soft power asset of the U.S. I'm totally buying that. I'm big on higher ed. I think it's a big part of sort of our future, and we want to win the future. I'd rather be us than the Chinese. Absolutely. I mean, we can come back to that in a minute, but it just seems to me that we have lost our way on this issue of vocational technical training. I can think of, I can think of four. You've got 20 anecdotes like this, I'm sure, but so I met a guy a month ago who's a millionaire who has an associate's degree, two-year associate's degree from community college in horticulture and runs the most successful plant store in Southern Maryland. And he's probably 50 employees starting to get robotics into it. And you're starting to see it, you know, even in this business. Another guy is a family friend who is in the elevator business and has 300 employees across seven states, and I'm sure it must be like a 30 million revenue company. And the guy's like a millionaire. And I don't think he did anything other than he got a trade, know how to fix and repair elevators, and he services everybody from sort of New Hampshire down to, to New Jersey. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's an enormous amount of money to be made. So, and we don't hold these people up either. We, we lionize the tech tech entrepreneurs. Well, we don't even hold up the person who's worth, I mean, let's take the millionaires out of it. What about that guy who's making $65,000 a year who actually does the elevator repairs? Yeah. Without it, he's supporting his family. He's got a good wage. Yeah, I mean, the best, doing, the, my view is the best social yeah. program is a job. That's ex- so that's exactly right. So we don't hold these people up. Not only do we not hold up the person who has the 50 or the 300 employ- employees, we aren't holding up the 50 or the 300 employees who are able to support their families, who are doing a good, honest job that adds I mean, value. How many people work in Silicon Valley? Is it a million people? Is it half a million people? It's a long way from a million. Okay, I bet I bet it's 300,000 people. And But you would think in the newspapers, you would think that the, the coverage that these people get, it's like 60, I don't know, I'm making this up. Right. There's an enormous mismatch with how many jobs. Anyways, I think we have a media problem too. I know I'm cognizant of the time. Let me just go back to this issue of the U.S. versus China for a second. So would you rather be us or would you rather be China? I mean, given the book you wrote and given sort of the, the challenge of AI, robots, drones, driverless cars, lots of disruptions coming, I still think we're the generator of most intellectual property. Now, maybe I'm soothing myself. Am I telling myself a tale? Am I, am I, am I whistling through the the graveyard here? What What's your take on that? So, so two things. First, I do think that there will be more geographic spread in terms of where 
real wealth creating, job creating innovation takes place then. You know, if you look at sort of the the wealth and jobs created by the internet, sort of 1994 to 2018, a lot of that was clustered in, you know, a little part of Northern California and part of Washington State, right? Yep. Um, I do think that there's going to be more geographic spread, but I don't think it, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. But I also don't think it's all going to be in the United States or China. I look at places like Tel Aviv. I look at I look at places in in Germany and in in Sweden. I actually think that there are there's going to be more geographic spread. If I were to focus for a moment on just the U.S. versus China, you'd rather be us. I'd definitely rather be us. You know, the the Chinese have some singular assets. You know, their ability to do industrial policy in a way that we can't. Their will and their ability to drive enormous amounts of capital into the commercialization of genomics or AI is formidable. But look, if you're going to put the two of us in the ring, I'm going to take the United States, our access to high-risk early-stage capital, our track record of imagining and inventing the future, the fact that we are still drawing in the world's best university and graduate students. They're going to our colleges and universities. When we are at our best, we are keeping them in the United States after they get their degrees where they can start their companies. Nobody is emigrating to China. Nobody's saying, banging down the door to say, please, Beijing, let me in. I love the air pollution. I love the social, the social score, my social behavior score. I really want to be live in a police state, be great, and you have know, one kid. The, there is not an immigration. Immigration is not a controversial and a, and a topic huku, in China. How do you pronounce it? Huku, you know, the internal passport. Yeah. Please give me one of those internal passports so that, you know, if I have a kid, I can't go to school because I'm living in the, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. If you look at, if you go to a naturalization or a ceremony. Yeah, I have. Mrs. Mrs. Rundy got naturalized. There you, so you see people from all over the world, and people work really hard to become American yeah. citizens. Very controversial, right? Go to China. Go to a naturalization ceremony. First of all, there's nobody there. And secondly, it's going to be like two guys from Mongolia. People are not killing themselves to emigrate to China. And so, look, I'm not going to poo-poo China. I think that they have, again, very formidable assets, yeah. intellectual assets. Their ability to they're good at stealing stuff too. They're great at stealing stuff. Their ability to homogenize a market, where their ability to keep competitors out of a market, it's all substantial. But you, you put the United States and China in a ring together, we continue to outcompete them. Yeah, I'm putting my money on the good old USA. Alec, this is awesome. Love your book. Come back. I'm such a fan. I was quite taken with it. That's why I reached out to you. I hope you do another book. And I don't think we've heard the last of you. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for having me.